So, I guess we should start with Consistently Eccentric does movie recommendations starring Jack Heathcote. So, Jack, the floor is yours. It's a film, I think it came out in 2003, and it's well known now. Hmm. So I I don't know if I need to give it much of a recommendation. But The Room happens to be the film I've watched more than any other film. That's a strong admission. I must be up to... I'm over 10 Mm. views. Have you watched The Disaster Artist? Yes. Yeah. So you're you're very into the room culture. I I love everything about it. If if I made you a t-shirt with quotes from The Room on it, would you wear it in public? In the hopes that somebody who had also been deeply affected by The Room would notice you on a street and would give you that kind of point of... It only works for the accent, though. Because the, the quotes are like, hey, Danny. <laughs> like, oh, I did but, not hit her. I did not. Oh, hey, Mark. <laughs> these are the, these are the right. <laughs> well, don't you think that it's great that someone could self-finance something? I definitely have breast cancer. <laughs> See, maybe... You what, need to watch it, Joe. What I'll do is I'll cut it's it. It's the most for... wonderful experience. That's what it's about. It's not just you just sit and watch a film. I think I must think about it every other day. <laughs> I watched it five years ago. Yeah. To to give context, Jack has been referring to this film in the same way someone might refer to a religious experience they had. <laughs> you know, some deep, profound moment of becoming one with the universe. It broke my brain. I think. <laughs> Is it, there's always another layer to it. I just. Yeah, it's how to do a film wrong. Just every, every, every layer. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric, a podcast where I will attempt to teach a friend of mine a lesson from British history, focusing specifically on the lesser known and less believable people and events that the history books tend to leave out. So let's get started with... This story begins in the Victorian era and the three words, because I know you love them, that you need to remember are... Summerly. Say that again. Summerly. One more time. That's not your three words. Summerly. <laughs> Summerly. Summerly. Banana. Okay. And profit. Okay. First I'm you, not. I'm, uh, first every you get every the banana, time, I'm not going to make a guess because then you get the profit. So, in Paris, in May of 1884, King Louis Philippe the first was having a great time he had personally opened the 10th french industrial exposition and he spent every monday examining some of the exhibits of which there were nearly 4000 stands so there was a lot to examine yeah. it was the how did he examine these things with a monocle a, a silver gilded crystal monocle so that he could really examine everything that the French industrial classes could do. What could they do? The, uh, pottery, yeah. um, textiles. They were ve- oh, they were very good at textiles at that time. Um, cheese, I assume, <laughs> was there at some point because you had to have something to eat. You can't go around four thousand stands without there being at least one food truck. Anyway, the guy with the toothpicks with bits of cheese on. <laughs> Fromage. Fromage. I love this place. <laughs> Just much Every fromage. Yeah. It's my favourite day. So, at the end of the exhibition in June, 
the king would personally hand out 31 Legion of Honor medals. He was that impressed. And that's the highest award that a French civilian can receive. So some of these guys impressed him so much. It was... It was, the, it was, was he the, a good king? Mm. I mean, we're Victorian now, so we're getting was he to the end king? of kings being around. It's a good It's a good question. Or kings having any power. <clears throat> it's a very good question. By the time of the 11th Expo, four years later, things in France were a little different. Uh, king Louis-Philippe had been forced to abdicate and was living in exile in London. Uh, and in his place, a young prime minister had been appointed by the name of Louis-Napoleon. So not Napoleon Bonaparte, Louis Napoleon. He was a relative of Napoleon Bonaparte and, unsurprisingly, really, uh, he later declared himself emperor because that's what Bonapartes do. Yeah. Yeah. Is he a Bonaparte? He is a Bonaparte. So he's Louis Napoleon Bonaparte. No, he's just Louis Bonaparte. Uh, Louis Napoleon. Napoleon. (laughs) (laughs) He's a relative of the famous Napoleon. But he's also a Napoleon who made himself emperor. Yeah. Because it all gets twisted. You know you know about the French and the Louis. You know, you've got Louis the first, second, third, fourth, fifth. The the when they get a name, they kinda go with it. They like to keep that name going along. But that doesn't matter. It was also at this eleventh and final edition of the expo, the French Industrial Expo, that a visit was made by an Englishman. By the name of Henry Cole. Good English name, that. Yeah, strong. Especially in Victorian Britain. Henry Cole. I'm named after the thing that is powering the entire country. He knows it. Mm. He was the quintessential Victorian polymath. Prior to his visit, he'd already made a name in Britain as one of the architects of the Penny Post. He is credited with the design of the Penny Black Stamp, which is the first stamp ever. Yeah. Did it have his head on it? think it had Queen Victoria's head on it. How dare she? <laughs> I designed Who it. Who does she think she is? <laughs> I just, does, it must have Queen Victoria on it. I couldn't imagine she wouldn't... She she was bound to, wasn't when she? When you put like a, a nice little critter on there. Yeah, why couldn't we have had Paddington Bear? That would have been nice. Uh, and in line with capitalist principles, he immediately profited off both the Penny Post and the Penny Black by inventing the concept of sending Christmas cards. He is the man responsible for the Christmas card. Didn't even believe in Father Christmas. No, and you could retire on that. It's like if you wrote Happy Birthday. Yeah, you, you don't need to do anything else. That's that, that's the kind of thing everybody's after. Mm. You know, when you, you, be as ubiquitous as the Happy Birthday song. It's the inventing... Everyone's had, everyone has my my inventing idea was a, a spoon <laughs> that you stuck to the roof of your microwave that stirs your soup as <laughs> you microwave. That that's actually a really good <laughs> idea. Please, someone go make that. I'm never. <laughs> you don't even want credit. I'm you just, just want to... I'm just the ideas guy. <laughs> <laughs> if twenty years from now on JML, <laughs> you see. The microwave stirring spoon, just affixed to the... You would be happy. And you have some sort of rig so it's not just overturning all your bowls of soup. Oh, no. It sits in a little thing that... Like you say, you're the ideas guy. You're not R&D. You need somebody else to actualise that concept. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. uh, I've got a million of them, Joe. Henry Cole, he had a million as well. He, He had a passion for industrial design. He's a member of the Society for the Encouragement of the Arts, Manufacture and Commerce. 
Is he a good man? To this point, he's he's made Christmas more of an obligation. <laughs> you now can't just celebrate Christmas with the people who are around you. You have to keep a long list of people you've met in your oh, life. God, people still live like that. Yeah, and you need to send excruciatingly the same message out to all of them, costing you a hell of a lot in stamps, which, of course, Henry Cole is directly profiting off. See, I've expertly positioned myself in the family hmm. as... <laughs> I haven't done it willfully, but people don't expect <laughs> people don't expect a present from me or a card. And there's no bitterness. No, no. I mean, when it turns up, the, the level of expectation is when you last gave me a gift and it was wrapped in literal newspapers. <laughs> I was more excited than any of the other presents I got. How happy was my face <laughs> when I gave you that present? <laughs> I'm so proud of myself. Okay, so, oddly... Kate had to sit me down one year and say, don't do it in newspaper again. <laughs> Could you give me some nice wrapping paper? <laughs> we have money now, Jack. The first two or three years, it's all in newspaper. Yeah, I- to be honest, you made it into a thing. It wasn't It wasn't Jack's cheaping out. It's like, this is Jack's quirky thing. This is how you know it's Jack's <laughs> gift. That it will come wrapped in the Guardian. <laughs> so, oh, weirdly, in terms of his um, manufacturing work, um, including the design of a new teapot, he always completed this under the pseudonym... Did it have a lid? <clears throat> It had up till then they were just pouring no, it water had, it into had the spout. Three spouts, so you could pour three at once. Efficiency. Yeah, that's what he was all about. But he completed all of his work under the pseudonym Felix Summerley. Wait a minute, mm-hmm. I've heard that word before. Yeah, I don't know why you would feel the need. It's not like he's doing something risque. He's designing a teapot. The idea that that's such a scandalous thing to do in Victorian Britain that I can't put my name on this teapot is far too phallic for a man of my disposition and sensibility. I shall I shall use a pseudonym. I imagine a few people fainted when they first saw that. When they first saw the teapot in Victorian Britain, probably. Yeah. Maybe that's it. It was just a very phallic spout. <laughs> it's one of the cosies where they went to keep the, the contents warm. Oh, to just cover up the teapot. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to actually look at it. It's too curvaceous. I have to admit, I haven't seen the teapot he designed, so maybe it was a particular... They didn't catch on, did it? The three-spout. The th- three-spouter. I made that up. I don't know who was a three-spouting <laughs> part. That's your great idea. That's my great idea, yeah. What I do know is that Johnny Vegas <laughs> has... Two friends. <laughs> Johnny Vegas has a teapot in the V&A, his one-minute teapot, because he originally trained as a... Um, what? Potter. He trained to make stuff out of clay. And he has a one-minute teapot. He can make a teapot in a minute, and he has it in the V&A. So, Johnny Vegas. Yeah. There you go. That's his other thing. So, long after his comedy career is crumbled and he's dead, he will have that little teapot sat in some dusty corner of the museum. Is that a record for... I think it was just like his party piece. It's like, give me a lump of clay and a potter's wheel. I'll make you a teapot. Johnny, we don't... We don't we're drinking beer. Johnny, I'll make you a tea. You can pour it out of that. No. Try one of these beers, Johnny. <laughs> and he never No, looked. I don't drink. He never looked back. I'm going to have a sip. I want to keep my frame at a tight nine stone. <laughs> I've got that marathon to run. 
Mm. It's part of your worries that Johnny Vegas is going to hear this. Because <laughs> I do know, like you know, if I got If I got a, a message from Johnny Vegas saying, how fucking dare you, I would consider it the height of, of this I mean, it's podcast. well documented on shooting stars. <laughs> so, um, another keen patron of the arts and manufacture and commerce was Prince Albert. The, the royal consort, yeah. Dapper Gent from Germany. So when the two men met, and after Felix Summary had revealed that he was in fact mild-mannered Henry Cole, took away the mask that I assume he wore, yeah, yeah. Um, Prince Albert agreed to patronise the society. Patronise the No, he didn't patronise, he patronised <laughs> them. Oh, isn't that nice? <laughs> what a lovely little thing you've got going on there. Mm. <laughs> no, he, he became patron of the society making it the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacture and Commerce. They organised exhibitions for arts and manufacture, 1847, 1848, 1849, yearly. 1850. Well, then, in 1849, Cole visited the French Expo, didn't he? He saw how the French were doing it. He saw 4,000 stalls and as much cheese on a stick. You're writing how you've done this. Yeah. Isn't it good? That's what Wikipedia can't do. It can't, can it? Bring all these stories together. (laughs) So he returned to England and suggested they skip the 1850 exposition. They're not going to do it. But instead, they're going to create a massive one to include manufacturers from all across the world because the French one <clears throat> only opened to French people. I like, I'd, I'd like to think he, he took his three-spouted teapot <laughs> and they went, no. <laughs> and he went, well, I'm going to make one bigger, <laughs> ten times better than your expo. Come on, Albert. Yeah, I've got Albert, he'll look after me. Well, whatever the reason, he said, you know what, we're going to make it from all over the world, we're going to make the biggest one. We're going we're gonna to show the French that you should be open to it. We're going to accept Germans, Belgians, Americans, Indians, Chinese people can come and display things, Russians can, whoever wants to. No, no, no. Oh, French as well. No, he's like, he's magnanimous. Uh, He did have an ulterior motive. He wanted it primarily so that they could clearly demonstrate that British industry was the best in the world. Uh, And he envisaged that British exhibits would take up at least half of the available room. So it would be, you can have this corner and we're going to have this massive area here. So when people come to the world exhibit... They're mainly going to see British stuff. The stuff that we make. Yeah. Does he know that there's enough British stuff to fill this thing? Is there a call going out at the last minute? Like, Well, no, no. I've only got three items. As you can imagine. Well, I've got a... I I can call return it. (laughs) Yeah, right. You're going to be the main event, right? (laughs) We've got our keynote speech. (laughs) Can you you possibly make the the fruit and veg into musical instruments? Because I hear that's going to be big... A carrot flute, I believe, can can possibly go on primetime TV when TV's invented and people will sit and watch it for a good five minutes. Yeah. Can you play it with your nose as well? Because that will send them through the roof. <laughs> so, Prince Al... <laughs> yeah, just ready for ready, okay. ready to play my carrot flute. I just oh, get I'm leaning away. <laughs> so, Prince Albert loved the plan. 
wasn't bothered in the slightest by the 24-month deadline that they'd set for the largest expo ever. And he lobbied Parliament about the plan. With Henry Cole insisting the whole enterprise... Would be all right. ...would be self-financing. So it wouldn't cost Parliament a penny. Parliament refused. Then presumably somebody explained exactly what self-financing meant. And they approved the plan. 13,000 individual exhibitors from across the empire and the world signed up to attend. Which left the Royal Society with a problem. They needed an empty, beautiful building to house everything in. Of a size that currently didn't exist in London. Anywhere. You can't... Well, not empty. All right, all right. They need a massive empty building that they can fill with 13,000 exhibitors. Bum, bum. Bum, bum, <clears throat> ba, dum, bum. I just feel like they're all going to get motivated and build something quick. So what do they need? Just hard work hmm? and, a, and a will. No. Oh. No, no, no. What they need is a gardener. Oh, hell yeah. Yep. Joseph Paxton, who up until this point was famous for cultivating... Cult, cultivating? Cultivating Cultiv- all his friends who were party. <laughs> no, for cultivating the Cavendish banana, which is the one we all eat now. The seedless one. Because if you've seen a sort of a wild banana, they are full of seeds. Yeah. So he came up with the banana we know and love. And it just so happened that he was in London and he suggested to a friend that a giant glass structure like one of his greenhouses would be perfect for the exhibition. (coughs) Crystal Palace. Well, he made some quick plans and he presented it to the Royal Society. And when I say quick plans, you can see them. Napkin. You can go online. Yeah. Is it It really? It's literally a scribble. And he presented that to the Royal Society and went, how about this? They rejected it as they already had another design deep into the planning stage. So what Joseph Paxton did, because he thought he was onto a winner. Yeah. He was like, I've, look, at, look at what I've scribbled. This is, this is gold. Yeah. He just pub- published the design in Illustrated London News, which was um, sort of like a prototype magazine of the day. Uh, and the public support for his design was so great that the Royal Society were basically forced to use it by way of public opinion. <clears throat> I wish that was still the case now and we'd have Boaty McBoatface. Yeah, wouldn't it be great? This was the equivalent of Boaty McBoatface. It was um, temporary, which was great because they were building it in Hyde Park. Relatively cheap and could even be built to enclose the large trees of Hyde Park, the elm trees, uh, so that they didn't have to be cut down, which was great for two reasons. Firstly, trees you, are cool. You don't, yeah, you don't want to cut down a mature tree. And secondly, some of those trees... Um, contained hawks nests for hawks so any pigeons or other vermin that got into the the building would have a natural kind of pest control element to it which is fantastic how do the hawks feel about that probably very perturbed at the fact that there were just some people constructing this building around their home but if if they did feel sad about it they didn't tell anyone and no if records. You, if you don't speak to your local councillor about things you're not happy about, how do you expect change? I can't argue with that, Joe. You can't just sit and see. That's logic. Yeah. Uh, so in just nine months, Joseph Paxton, assisted by Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Oh my God, I know this guy. Yeah. How do I know him? And about, because he, he was 
the industrialist industrialist he built bridges the clifton suspension bridge him you'll you'll remember him from the picture of a bloke in a stovepipe hat stood in front of ridiculous sized chains now we've done this in a previous episode I've he got... was in this this uh cecil um we may have mentioned it but i don't think he was a, a, a primary figure in it he's yeah. not a primary figure in this he just helped uh, so Isambard Kingdom of Brunel and 2,000 low-paid workers mounted a million square foot of glass. <laughs> 2,000 into... unnamed people. <laughs> well, from, from most of the things I could read, it wasn't. they didn't say um, low-paid workers, they said Irish navvies. Oh, right. So I thought, I thought saying low-paid workers was probably less offensive. Um, he mounted one million square foot of glass into 45 tonnes of iron to create... The 563 metre long, 33 metre high Crystal Palace. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> In order to ensure that the tr- structure was safe... He kicked it like you would a tyre of a car. No, no, no. Prince Albert, because, you know, there are some benefits to being the husband of the Queen, organised for a detachment of soldiers to march down the central aisle in lockstep, which is how they used to test bridges. Just getting all that sure weight okay. on. Well, not just that, but the vibration of people marching in time to see that it would it would stay. None of the glass panes came out. We're good to go. Soldiers <laughs> wiped their brow. <laughs> Our work here is done. <laughs> <clears throat> Off to, you know, subjugating India or whatever they were doing at the time. Uh, so, with the safety of the building assured, and with 13,000 exhibitors waiting inside, on the 1st of May, 1851... The great exhibition of the works of industry of all nations. I can't believe they pulled it off. Yep. Prepared to open its doors for the first time. They hadn't put doors in. (laughs) Oh, God, no. Is there no twist to the story? Not to this point. Okay. Yep. With a grand ceremony conducted by Queen Victoria herself, supported by the Archbishop of Canterbury in a kind of MC role, hype man. Now, there was a problem. The European aristocracy had already made it quite clear they were going to avoid it like the plague. They feared that people being able to see things of that amount, just that 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 r- broad range of things, mm. was bound to leave, lead to a revolution. They were genuinely fearing a revolutionary mob would break out. Right. Uh, so they they all basically said we're not, we're not coming. They were not missed. At the time of the exhibition, the population of England. I once I nearly lost my mind when I <laughs> continue. <laughs> Just, is that is that the end of the I anecdote? Just, I saw a lot of M and M's in one place. One <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot. I love it. Oh, brilliant. M&M's, have you been to the... Don't they have an M&M store on Oxford Street in London? You should never <laughs> go there. <laughs> what do they sell? <laughs> All the kinds. The solid caramel, the... Um, was it like the waffle cone centre ones? Crispies. Yeah, the crispy ones. I imagine that you go in there, you black out, and then the next time you were sort of conscious, we'd be telling you you spent six months in an institution <laughs> and we'd been really fearful <laughs> yeah. that you'd never come back to us. <laughs> But anyway, at the time of the exhibition, so in 1851, <clears throat> the population of England was only 15 million. Have you ever eaten an M&M, but you were expecting a Smartie? 
No. No, continue. Okay. So, the population of England, 15 million, yeah? Over the course of the five months of the exhibition, over 6 million people visited. For context, this is approximately the same number of visitors as the Millennium Dome got over an entire year in 2000, when the population of England was nearly 50 million. So in terms of the equivalent of over a third of the population of the country visited this. Jesus. I know. The surge in visits was partly due to the expansion of the railways, with people from all over the British Isles being able to get to London relatively cheaply, to the point where Thomas Cook did a package trip to London to go to the exhibition. Is that how old Thomas Cook is? That's how old Thomas Cook is. So they did a package trip. That's when it it was actually a man called Thomas Cook. Yeah, this was Thomas Cook. Would literally put you on the back of his wagon and ride you down. I don't think that's how it worked, but you know, he was definitely pulling the strings at the top of it. You need to be more confident, Joe. People won't question it. <laughs> yeah. Another draw was that the ticket prices were staggered. So the cheapest was only one shilling and 4.5 million paid just that amount. How does it get staggered? So you, are you, oh, you can only see the things in the left side. No, no, of no. It's, it's when you could go. So at the weekend, it costs more ah, right, with the right, idea so. that the, the richer people could go on a Saturday and a Sunday assured that the riffraff wouldn't be able to afford to get in. So, but during the week it was free for all and four and a half million uh, relatively poor people from across the British Isles piled in at a whale of a time but I know what you're asking you know I've, I've told you about all of this but what did you actually get for your money and what are you seeing what are you seeing that's the question isn't it so some of the highlights do you want them nope these <laughs> <laughs> goodbye <laughs> No, I'm happy just with the broad strokes of this. I don't need to know <laughs> details. So would would you like to hear about some of the exhibits and, and we'll see what you think. Will you be impressed? I think we should tease it for another 10 minutes. Would I like that? Mm. Would you like to hear it? Number one. Okay. okay. You could go and you could see a single lump of gold weighing 50 kilograms from Chile. A 50 kilo lump of pure gold. That'd be quite amazing. To For see. a shilling, you pay a shilling, you get to see a fifty lump. How much kg lump of gold? How much is that piece of gold worth? I a relative lot. to a shilling. I mean, imagine the amount of curb change you could make from that these days. So you, it's astronomical. You're talking What's millions. Curb chains. Have you never seen a curb chain? No. Oh, you need to. You need to get into modern culture. Okay, so there's that. There was a stuffed elephant carrying an Indian holder, which is the. Uh, you know the thing you're riding as a side note to that the elephant was on loan from a museum in Essex because the Indian um, exhibitors didn't bring a stuffed elephant with them from India uh, it was unfortunate that the only elephant they could get at short notice from this museum in Essex was an African elephant rather than an Indian elephant uh, so it's more spectacular the entire African. thing yeah the entire thing didn't quite fit onto the the larger frame of than the longer back of the African yeah. elephant, but hey, showbiz baby. Well, is is the average British person going? Wait a minute. They were very impressed. <clears throat> Let's put it that way. That's not. That's an African elephant. Yeah. You could you could also see a four ton pink glass fountain in the centre of the thing. Would have walked straight past that. Okay, mm-hmm. fair enough. You're walking past that. Swiss watches because they're nothing if consistent. Can I kind of like kind of. Can I handle any of these things? Hell, you cannot handle these things. Piss off. 
What happens if I turned up on a Saturday? Still no. You can't handle any of these things. We'll get to that, though. But I paid three <clears> shillings. <laughs> yes. And that I'm not a one-shilling mook. No. And what you get for that is less people around you. Okay. It's exclusivity. It's not access. You can get to see Cossack armour and furs from Russia. Mm. Mm. Sable. I, I assume that's where Sable's from. Yeah, it is. Is it? I think so. Isn't it just like? Isn't it just like a particularly furry like polecat or? Furry? Well, I watched a short documentary on the most expensive expensive watercolor brush. Is that made from sable? It's made from like red sable or something. Ooh. It's just the under um, hairs on its tail. <laughs> All right, so it's you... undercoat. Does the sable have to die for this, or do they just sort of shave its tail? No, it's it's sourced. <laughs> it's sourced. It's basted. <laughs> so these these sable just occasionally get the the tail shaved and wonder what the no, hell no, is going on. No, they're murdered for. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's responsible. Yeah, I think you make some gloves with the rest of okay. it. Okay. So one of the most popular exhibits was German. And it was uh, a taxidermy scene showing some kittens having tea. Because the British are nothing if not consistent that if you make the Victorian equivalent of a meme of cats, then that is the thing that the English will gravitate towards. It was possibly the most popular exhibit in the Great Exhibition was this taxidermy. So you'd see that. I mean, that's worth your shilling right there. When are you going to see kittens having tea again? I'd love to... I've been so overexposed to the world. Yeah. You know you know how we just you can see anything in a heartbeat. It's just there on your phone. Mm. And it all becomes it's like how there's no worth to any music anymore because you can pull up any music. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I mean like all music's worthless. Yeah, if you if you try and pop yourself back to that time. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I wait, I wait. That you've what never seen anything like that before. You lived in your Lancashire mill town and you the the most impressive thing you'd seen was the machinery in there and then you went to the Great Exhibition you were seeing the wonders from countries you would never, not just never visit, but never really have been aware of. That's yeah. what I'm saying. It's like, what would you have to see now with, with all that's available for you to have your breath taken? Mm. Yeah, the bar is quite high. <laughs> But it was it wasn't just it's not, it know. wasn't just exhibits. You could also I'd see... yawn at a table full of kittens. Okay. Well you could also see some some live action. You could see Alfred Charles Hobbs picking two unpickable locks during the course of the exhibition. I told you this. The Brahma lock and the Chub. Yeah. And once you were done with that, you could go and see the Koinor or Mountain of Light Diamond, which was the largest diamond at the time that had been found. Which was embarrassingly in a case that was projected, protected by an unpickable chub lock. So, Chubb had gone to that exhibition thinking, "Look at look at this publicity. We are the people trusted to lock up the biggest diamond in the world," and had immediately been undermined by an American. Oh, did it get picked? The unpick not. It wasn't the one that was protecting the diamond, but it was a version of that unpickable lock that he picked successfully at the exhibition. Ah, right, right. Earning himself the uh, the prize money. Uh, there was a massive hydraulic press designed by Stevenson, 
the guy who made the rocket. That's mm. mm. just it was massive, apparently. Could like, you get like a? What could you eat? Mm. Do they have food vendors and stuff? I feel quite tired on this virtual tour right now, and I, well, I won't mind sitting down. I'm, I'm going to say I've got nothing about that. Also, you could um, see a hydraulic hammer that could smash like open iron ore and really things, or it could be set so it would delicately crack an egg. Really nice. Could you fry that egg and... <laughs> and cook it for you? Yeah, that was that was how they were doing it. It was on the omelette stall. Like this could smash, this could smash through steel, but we use it. Ding. But it doesn't have to. Yeah. Just because you are strong doesn't mean you need to use all of that strength all of the time. It's about how you apply that strength. I love there's always a message in your stories, mm. Jay. Got to be a sensitive man. You, could see, you can see a pocket knife with eighty blades <laughs> from Sheffield. Go Sheffield! Yeah. You could see a piece of farm machinery called the Virginia Grain Reaper. It was the most popular part of the American exhibit, and it would cut and bale hay. It wouldn't. It would, like quick. Quicker than anyone would quicker, quicker than quicker a, than a human. Quicker than a human with a scythe. Yeah. Oh my god. By twice, as long as it didn't break. How would you How would you navigate this exhibit with all the the, the fainted bodies? <laughs> I thought you were scattered. Gonna, I thought you were going to say, "How would you navigate?" And I go, "They produced a booklet that you think. would go with. You know, and you'd, you'd be able to see where you were and you'd see what everything was." But in terms of the fainting women, I assume not women. I just mean all people. Well, women, men children yeah yeah they probably just stacked them there was a space to the side of the aisle where you just stack the fainting people yeah and allow them to wake up well you know the idea um uh of the cheapest place you could sleep back in that time was literally a rope that was strung along and you would sleep sat on a bench just over the rope that was the cheapest thing. I, you know, they could have had that along the line, and just as they fainted, you just sat them down, popped them over the rope, and then when they finally I think came, that'd to... be easier to sleep than you know when you're trying to fall asleep on an easy jet flight on the on the tray. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's mastered how to do that. Please, well, the tell rope me. is, you know, it's yeah, got yeah. a bit of bounce to it, and it's yeah, that's that used to be the cheapest place you could sleep. It'd just be a place with a long rope and a bench. Well, and you, just paid you could to... sleep just on the floor. Okay, the cheapest place to sleep that was like, well, you pay money. Right. You can always, you can always just fall and just hear. I'm just sleeping. <laughs> I will. It's sleep free over now. here on the floor. There was also prototype bicycles. There was counting machines that they were worrying would put financiers and you know accountants out of business, which obviously happened because we don't have accountants or financial advisors or anything like that now. No, and cashless. The world's first pay toilets. Because you've been walking around a while now on this virtual tour, you need to, Shit. you need to go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which cost? How much do you reckon? Thripney. They cost. No, a, let me. They cost a penny. Hence the phrase. To pinch a penny. <laughs> Close enough. I actually mentioned this to a colleague at work. Penny hard. Because <laughs> I asked him. I, I I had this this fact about where to spend a penny came from, and I asked a high up member of the NHS. Do you know where the phrase to spend a penny comes from? And he went, yes, I do. He did. But what he told me was that the phrase comes from fabric workers in northern towns buying urine because they used it to treat cloth. 
So they would spend like a, a penny tweed, to buy your piss yeah. to, to help treat the cloth. So I don't know which of those two is right. In my heart, I want to say that it was people buying piss. But all of the sources I could see kind of backed up the idea that it came from the, the Great Exhibition. It can't be both. I mean, it it could be, but that's quite unlikely. Coincidence, maybe? But no, I don't Conspiracy. think it is. Conspiracy. <laughs> we need to get this phrase into the public consciousness. Right, I suggest we, we go We need with... to stop this now and start <laughs> a documentary. <laughs> we go with the two-pronged attack. <laughs> We're both going to introduce it to the, the rich southerners at the Great Exhibition and to northern mill folk. And hopefully the, the two sides of this will conglomerate around the phrase to spend a penny. And we can introduce it to the national parlance. Because you know that. Have you ever said that in, with sincerity? Oh, parlance. <laughs> yes, just spend a, a penny. No, I, I I use the phrase. I need to go and sit on the donut in Granny's greenhouse. <laughs> Do you really? Hmm? It's a two Ronnie's quote. Actually, this is nothing to do with this, and it isn't written down. But the word quiz came from a bet that two people had were they were betting to see who could get a word into the Oxford English Dictionary first. And the guy who who came up with the word quiz just posted the word around the place and no one knew what it meant, which was how it got the um, sort of attached meaning of a question that you need to find an answer to or, you know... Right. A, a, you know a, so he, a he didn't know what it was going to be? No, he just started posting the word quiz around the place and I was going, what the hell does quiz mean? So then it was sort of like, oh, I don't know what this is. It's a right quiz. And then it, it kind of developed its own <laughs> meaning. And he won the bet. I didn't like how you played that. <laughs> oh, it's a right quiz. It was the little wink. <laughs> this is radio. You didn't have to bring that up. So, yeah. There was also, you know, you've been on your tour around. You've seen the highlights. There's also, if you paid the extra to be fair, the chance to bump into some celebrities as notables like Charles Darwin, Samuel Colt, the guy who invented, well, he didn't invent guns, made guns in America, the mm. Colt guns, he was there. The Duke of Wellington. He wasn't. In Boots was there. It can't be the actual people. Yes. Well, they stuck around for six months. I said you had the chance to. If you turned up on the right day, these are all people who visited. It's right. not like they just... They're, they're meet boots. the Duke of Wellington... Hey. How are you doing? An angry older gentleman. <laughs> I don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> Charles been... Darwin. It's you just to hear every... I've got meaningful work to do. <laughs> don't... I don't know why I'm here on this bench. <laughs> this stupid fucking contract. I can't get I'm out of it. Sleep on this robe. <laughs> Charlotte Bronte. Char... Of Char... Bronte sister fame. Yeah. Charles Dickens. Of Dickens fame. Yeah. Lewis Carroll. You're going to do it for every single one. George Eliot and Alfred Lord Tennyson attended alongside other notables. However, like I said, this was only if you could pay the weekend prices. You're not going to you're not going to get a Charles Darwin on a weekday with the riffraff because no. you know it's natural selection. Well, it's not. It's enforced. By the time the Great Exhibition closed on October the 11th, my birthday, a hundred odd years removed. Is it? Yeah. It had turned. I'm going to ignore that. You oh. forgot my birthday. I didn't. I knew categorically it wasn't the 14th. It's the 3rd, um, as you told me. So What it, year, Joe? 90, I want to say 93. 
You're awful. <laughs> was it 94? No. Was it 92? <laughs> no. Was it 94? It was 91. It was in the 90s. You were a 90s kid. You were born in that decade. <laughs> You're 87. I am. I'm important. <laughs> <laughs> so, can we, can we get back to the exhibition? Beautiful. I suppose. So, as, as promised by Henry Cole, it turned a profit. Not just a little profit. A massive, massive profit. Is he going to take a cut? No, oh God, no. It was big enough that Henry Cole was able to use the proceeds to build... A boat. No, no, no. The National Museum of Science, the National Museum of Natural History, and the Victoria and Albert Museum. And he still had enough money left over to build the Albert Hall. Fucking hell. Yeah. But that wasn't all the money. There was also enough money left over to provide grants for research funding that are still being given out to this day so that thing made so much money that we are still seeing the benefits in research grants that are being given out in this millennium is he, is he one of your favourite people so far I see no one's died yes he's one of my favourite people so far <laughs> the crystal palace itself was dismantled and it was moved to a home in Sydingham Kent the cost of moving and re-erecting the building was six times the initial cost. Yeah. They just made a new one, it would have been. And the new owners couldn't afford to maintain it. And it burned down in 1936. How'd you burn down a glass and iron building? They found a way. For insurance money. <laughs> they got nothing. Uh, it's literally... They got, they got a pile of glass and iron. Yeah. <laughs> At what point... Do you have to neglect a building to the point that it will burn down despite having no flammable constituents in its construction? Uh, Yeah, well, the owners, they hadn't been able to keep up with maintenance and cleaning, so I'm guessing it's some of the stuff that had just built up in it that set alight. And glass will melt. (laughs) Eventually. (laughs) It will. You should should start every... If you're doing the teasers, you know, before... Mm -hmm. And next week... And then she just pulled that. What? And glass will melt. <laughs> you will believe. You will believe. People will tune in, Joe. You will believe that birds can fly <laughs> on next week's edition. <laughs> yeah, we could do that. So, Henry Cole. My man. Yeah. He's done well. He was knighted in 1875 after also helping because he, was, he loved setting shit up. That was his his jam. So he'd also helped to establish the Royal College of Art and the Royal College of Music. And then he had enough time, so he also founded the Imperial College London. So he's, he, he created London as it is today. He was a serial starter of things the that are now institutions. Yeah, wow. You wouldn't have the proms without Henry Cole on some level. I mean, I don't watch the proms. Do you not even watch I... last night? Do you not go do 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 not watch the last night of the proms? Can you even call yourself English? I mean, God like, damn. I can call myself anything. I can mm. call myself Indian. <laughs> We'd all <laughs> have to believe you? I don't know. <laughs> I said it with enough vigour. <laughs> That's my brother. He's Indian. <laughs> we don't know how. We are related. Yeah. <laughs> with the same father and mother. But somehow, yeah, it just happened. <laughs> it skipped 30 generations, including 20 we didn't know about. So. I did identify as a dolphin for six months as a child. 
And we respected that choice. Yeah, you did. Yeah. And a lot so, of tuna. Aside from all of those things, his other legacy, the idea of a World's Fair took off. With many countries hosting their own version in the years to come. America, unsurprisingly, went for quali- uh, quantity over quality. And they had seven over the next 90 years, including three that went over an entire year, two of which were in New York. So over those 90 years, New York had two years of world fairs going on. Do they have any exhibitions like this anymore? Not to the same degree. No. Uh, And one in Chicago. And you'd be amazed to find that we've got to the end of a story without any negativity being expressed at all. Wait a second. There were some bad things in there. The World's Fair was an... Yes, there was the ulterior motive of proving that British was best. But what its legacy actually was, was creating an area of London that is just full of museums and art and culture and is still funding important research and hopefully will continue to do so for many years to come. So good on Henry Cole, good on Prince Albert. I know things didn't quite go so well for him in the years after the Great Exhibition. I think he he lasted another eight before he died. But great, that's one thing that the Victorian era, we can look at that and say, that, was that okay. thing was great. It was it was better than okay, that was great. Yeah. That was something they did that was just fine. I still feel like there's a twist. I'm done, there's no twist. No rapes. <laughs> there may have been. You're not going to ruin my evening. I mean, there may, have, there may have been a rape around the area of the Crystal Palace during this period. Oh, that's awful. I know. It's terrible, but I don't think it was directly linked to the fact that it happened. You know, that the Great Exhibition was happening. Would have happened, Joe, if that exhibition wasn't there? Yes. What? This is Victorian England. (laughs) Things were happening. This is the, the, the period of Jack the Ripper and, you know, those kinds of things. We're never going to cover Jack the Ripper. No? Are you steering clear of all of that? Sherlock Holmes? wasn't real yeah he was hmm? well he's based on a real dude wasn't he no yeah, he was based on his uh, professor no yeah no <laughs> <laughs> mm. 